some of the pastor conference programs with me and various things like that, and it was uh, quite a, a shocking letter. Um, in many ways, for me, a very sad letter, and yet I think all too often very representative of, of the struggle in the ministry. He says, My life has taken a difficult turn, and I solicit your prayer support in helping me grope through this maze of ambiguity that I now face. He says, I miss being able to speak to you as a leader. I miss being able to speak to you as a member. There's little doubt that this church is my last pastorate. In spite of my spiritual exile, I savor every day as I watch with anticipation what God is going to do in your midst. And then he goes on to elaborate a little bit and begins to reveal some of the things that were obviously more evident to those uh, recipients of this letter. He says that though his, uh, his wife who had left him lives in a blissful state of separation, he said, I live in a state of loneliness and failure. He said, the lessons that God is teaching me about his sovereignty, his grace, and his love, he said, I value them greatly. These dark days have allowed me to better understand human uh, struggle, and I have experienced a range of emotions that make me weep more freely for those who have wronged me, just as Jesus wept for Jerusalem. What we have here, what we have here is a description of the heart-rending and yet... Uh, all-too-common saga of ministers. I read uh, in a mission magazine about a, uh, a Brazilian minister that said that of his uh, graduating class of 18 uh, from the seminary where he attended, that there were only two remaining uh, pastors left of that group still in the pastorate after some 10 years. Uh, they had struggled, they had fallen, they had failed, the pressure is intense. The challenge is great. The demand is uh, excruciatingly hard. And yet, there is a way through this wilderness, too. And uh, what I want to talk with you and share with you about, and this time this evening and tomorrow, is really taking a look afresh and anew at the Word of God to grasp how God shapes a man's life and ministry. To grasp an understanding of what God does for us in Christ and by His Spirit that would undergird us in such a way that we would be those whom Paul admonishes to remain steadfast and unmovable, that we might always abound in the work of the Lord with an assurance that our labor is never, ever in vain in the Lord. And yet so often we, we wonder within ourselves and we ponder before the Lord, but our labor does seem to be in vain. No one seems to appreciate. People tend to take advantage of us. Our fellow ministers don't always understand us. And who do we go and where do we go to? To just have someone to share our heart with and to really not just to sympathize with us, but to, to really stand in the gap with us and believe God with us and to really exhort us from the Word of God and say, look, this is the way. Walk in it. Now, we need that. We must have that. Uh, and so I want us to look into the life of a man that uh, I believe depicts for us some of these things. And uh, we're going to look at the life of Peter. But before I do, I want to 
divert back into one of the Psalms, and I want you to see something the psalmist said that I believe will underscore the imperative of what we're doing and why. In Psalm 103, in verse 7, the psalmist there indicates something to us that is, is a, he's giving us an insight into the children of Israel, into the leader Moses, and into really what God was doing in their life and ministry. Psalm 103, verse 7 says, He made known His ways unto Moses. His ways unto Moses. But His acts unto the children of Israel. He makes a distinction there between the ways of God and the acts of God. And of course, as a minister, you're fully aware of those distinctions. Uh, obviously, the Israelites had seen God's acts. I mean, they had, they had seen him deal with the various plagues. They had seen him part the waters of the Red Sea. They had seen him provide, as you spoke about earlier, uh, prior to one of your songs, about the manna from heaven. They had seen God time and time again intervene on their behalf, protecting them from the enemies, providing them with their daily bread, and just constantly leading and guiding them. They had seen God. And yet they miss God. And all too many in the church today, having at times seen or experienced the mighty acts of God, are missing the personal intimacy and relationship with Him through the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet Moses knew a dimension of God. He knew His ways because he knew the heart of God. He knew the person of God. He had relationship with Him. And out of that relationship came a walk that gave him the tenacity to go on and on and on, in spite of all those who kept pulling at him and tearing at him, yes, including his very own dear friends and family that had originally been part of his support team. Well, looking at the life of Peter, I want to consider uh, Peter from the standpoint of uh, the making of a leader. Much of what we're going to see in the life of Peter is really in the formative years of his life. I'll, I'll stop as he gets into his main role as a leader. But it's these formative years that are so critical. Because sometimes in the process of getting out there and doing the work of the ministry, we miss the foundations of what is required to be a man of God. You see, anybody can give a Bible speech. You don't even have to be a Christian to give a Bible speech. All you have to do is take this book, the Bible, the Holy Word of God, and look at it, analyze it, outline it, and give a talk on it. And there are great orators out there that are far superior to most of us. But they don't even necessarily have to know the Lord to give a Bible speech. But the issue is, are you going to be a man of God? Are you going to minister the Word of God in the power of God in such a way that it transforms lives? It alters them for all eternity. That is essential. That is critical. So we're going to look at Peter with that in mind and how God uh, shapes his life and ministry. And I would trust that during this time, uh, this would be an occasion for you to, to do three things as we walk through Peter's life. The first would be to re-examine your call. Uh, it's a healthy thing from time to time to re-examine the way in which God called us into the ministry and the specifics of the call he gave to us when he called us into the ministry some of the background of that call. And so I trust as we're walking through Peter's life, God will bring to your mind some of those specifics. And then as we go, also, that it would be an occasion to reaffirm your commitment. 
that personal relationship to him and the commitment to him, first of all, the one who called you, and then to the calling that he's given you. And then a uh, final thought would be to reconsider your commission, the very specific commission he's put upon you, whether it be music or, or the pastor of a church or the very specifics of the pastor, the nature of the pastor, but whatever that might be, to, to reconsider that commission. Okay, having said all that, let's look at the Gospel of John first of all. And we're going to start uh, in chapter 1. And as I said, we're going to just kind of weave through the Gospels and end up over in the book of Acts. John chapter 1. And I'm going to just lift out portions of Scripture uh, for the sake of time and with the understanding, of course, that you are very uh, knowledgeable and acquainted with these passages of Scripture. But beginning John chapter 1, verse 34, uh, John says, I saw and I bear record that this is the Son of God. And then on down in verse 38, it says that... Uh, all right, no, let me take verse 36. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, John said, Behold the Lamb of God. So he has made two declarations about Christ. First of all, that he is the Son of God, i.e., he is God, God in the flesh. But then he goes on to say he's the Lamb of God. That is, he is the sacrifice, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So he is God's uh, redemptive sacrifice provided for us. Now, he's established Christ, but... He's got two men with him here in verse 35. It says, there stood with him two disciples. Now, one of these two is going to have a significant role, and he's going to show up in just a moment. So, on down, um, uh, verse 37, the two disciples have, have heard Jesus speak, and, and, uh, and so they've heard what John said about him, and now they turn and they follow Jesus. In verse 38, it says, Jesus turned, he saw them following, he asked them a question, he said, what are you seeking? Why are you following me? What, what are you looking for? What are you trying to find? He, he's interested. He wants, But it, most of all, he wants them to know what they're seeking, what they're looking for. And um, then one of them asked, well, where do you live? Well, that might sound like a relevant question, but it really wasn't the more significant question. And so uh, Jesus said, well, if you really want to know the answer, he says, just come and see. So the first thing that the Lord does is he gets our attention. And then he invites us to just come and see. In other words, get a close-up look to, to check him out is what we might say in the vernacular of our day. So he says, come and see. And then let's skip on down verse 40. Uh, we find that uh, one of the two which uh, responded to that invitation, come and see, was Andrew. And he says there that it was Simon Peter's brother. And so now enter Simon Peter. Uh, he's about to enter the picture. So we look on, and Andrew, of course, finds his brother, uh, Simon. And he said to him, We have found the Messiah. Verse 41. We have found the Messiah. And verse 42 then, he doesn't stop there, but he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus looked upon Peter... He said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. But then he does a very interesting thing, and you'll see this is a pattern not only in the life of our Lord, but it's a pattern throughout the Scripture. He gives him a name change. He says, you are to be called 
Cephas, which is interpreted to be a stone. And, and what we find by that is when you have a true encounter with Jesus Christ, your life is eternally changed. There's a radical uh, difference that Christ makes, and it brings about a new creation, a new person. And so all through the scripture, old and new, when a person had that kind of dramatic encounter with God, there was a name change. Abram becomes Abraham. Um, Jacob becomes Israel, prince with God. Marvelous changes occur when a person uh, has that kind of personal encounter with the Lord. And so likewise, uh, Peter. And of course, Saul, that champion on the Damascus Road, suddenly has the impact of a lifetime, the blinding light. The revelation of the Son of God. Jesus Christ speaks. Paul is converted. And he's now known as Paul. So from Saul to Paul. Always we see that initial encounter revolutionizes. It's an internal work. We get a new heart. We become a new creation. Well, anyway, the stage is set. And, and, and Jesus gives that uh, vision for for. Uh, Peter, the vision of this Simon, Simon, son of Jonah, and how he will become Cephas. He will become Peter, the stone. Uh, but then there's a statement made the next day, which now encompasses these who have begun to follow him and directed to the one whom he found named Philip, but addressing this new group, this, this fledgling group, to soon become not only disciples, but uh, in the very near future, apostles. And the word is simply this, follow me. Follow me. Now I want you to grasp those two words because they're going to show up as a thread throughout the walk that we're going to walk through in Peter's life. Follow me. Follow me. Sounds simple, very profound. And what we're going to see is all along these men thought they were following him, but they really weren't. Because... They had no concept of what it means to follow Christ. And I submit to you today that the majority of ministers I've talked to in, in every realm of Christendom don't fully grasp what it means to follow Christ within their own life and their own relationship to Him as well as in the call of God on their life as a minister. So that's why we must come back and, and look carefully at what the Scriptures say about this. Okay, so let's, uh, let's go now to Matthew chapter 4, and let's look at verse uh, 18. Matthew 4 and verse 18. And remember now, we're just simply walking through Peter's life. And we're going to see by him and by his life a glimpse into how God shapes a man's life and likewise his ministry. In verse 18, Jesus has uh, just uh, completed a very short but pointed challenge to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we see him in verse 18 walking by the Sea of Galilee. The uniqueness of Jesus was he was a very down-to-earth person. He was very ordinary. He was very real. It, it reminds me of what a pastor friend said to me uh, of a time when uh, he happened to be in seminary during the time 
of the Asbury Revival. And some of you may be familiar with the Asbury Revival, but uh, it happened in the late uh, 60s and, and it continued into the early 70s, and it impacted many campuses. At any rate, where he was at, they were in this uh, situation, and um, uh, so he and his minister friends used to sit around and they would critique the various preachers that came to chapel, and they would analyze them, and they would, uh, most of all, they would uh, really just um, criticize them. Okay, and uh, so what? Uh, what my friend said happened was that when that reviving presence of the Lord began to take place on their campus after these uh, students from the Asbury Seminary came, uh, he said God just uh, gripped them in a fresh new way. And he said one of the early things that occurred was, uh, he said God really, in so many words, uh, uh, caused them to see that they needed to take the sheriff's badge off. That was the way he put it. In other words, he was saying God showed us it, it's time for us to stop looking around at what everybody else is or isn't doing and begin to look at what God is saying to us and what he wants to do in us. And you're going to see that essentially in the life of Peter. And it's going to show up again at the very end of his life. But, but this is where we are here. Jesus walks by the Sea of Galilee. He's ordinary, he's down to earth, and he's real with people. And he sees two brothers... Simon, now called Peter, or known as Peter now because of Jesus' designation, and Andrew, his brother. And what are they doing? They're doing uh, their occupation. They're casting a net. They're fishermen. And so they're casting a net because they were, in fact, fishers of men. They were fishermen, uh, verse 18. But Jesus says in verse 19, follow me. There's that phrase again. Follow me, and now with a promise and I will make you fishers of men. But, but if we just leave off that latter phrase, and I'm not going to take anything away from that, because most certainly he did make them fishers of men, but we can in reality say there was a lot more to it than that. He was just introducing them to an element here. Because in effect what Jesus was saying is, if you will follow me, I will make you. I will make you. I'll make you whatever it is you're supposed to be. I will make you what I've called you to be. I will make you. But here's the dilemma. Whether it be in those early years when we're going to Bible school or seminary or just starting out in the ministry and, 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 and whatever, there is that all too common human tendency to try to make ourselves, to, to try to, to, to through, through study and, and through, um, you know, practicing in a mirror how we're going to look when we preach and all the stuff, you know, to get it down right and to be really polished so that we can be, quote, the minister, the preacher. And what God is saying is, let's take the, the religious garb off, let's take the preacher cloak off, and, and just get real with him. And he says, if you will just come back to the starting point of just following me, and that is to say, in following me, you must let me make you. You must let me make you. It is, in fact, what the psalmist said in Psalm 100, verse 3, wherein he said, We are the sheep of his pasture. We are the sheep. We're not the shepherd. And furthermore, it is he that has made us, and not we ourselves. But the pressure is on for us in the ministry to make ourselves somebody. Because, you see, as you were saying of being in the ministry, people are watching us. 
They have expectations of us. They've oftentimes written them down, and you've been served them when you first come to, to accept that pastorate and that call. They say, this is the, the job description, so to speak. And this is what you're required to do and be. And so the pressure is on, seemingly, to produce and to perform. And the danger, then, is to succumb to the trap of, of, of trying to live up to man's expectations and of trying to produce and to perform. Losing sight of the true source of productivity and performance, which is found in the Lord himself. He began a good work in you, and he will do what? He promises to do what? In Philippians 1.6, he promises to perform that which he began. He is the one who will perform it. He began it, yes, and he will perform it. And so we must not ever lose sight of that, and yet the tendency is to lose sight of it. So when we do, we need to remind ourselves or remind each other, you know. But he began that good work, and he alone can and he alone will perform it through us, in us and then through us, in us and then through us. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I remember strolling across my college campus after having been given some pretty stern challenges by a man who had been leading about a thousand people to the year to the Lord in personal evangelism. And he had challenged us by saying this one night. At the end of the service, he said, the invitation is out the back door. He said, I'm not asking people to come down front and make some kind of decision. He said, I'm saying go out there and find somebody that doesn't know the Lord and lead them to Christ. So later that week, I'm walking across the campus, and I'm saying, gee, Lord, I, you know, I, I really want to lead people to the Lord, and I, I have tried, and I've led a few, but I don't seem to get very many opportunities. <laughs> and then it's as if the Lord said, what do you call all these people? You see, at that time, our campus had about 10,000 in the student body. And so that was a pretty good-sized uh, opportunity. But yet I was saying to God, I don't have any opportunities. There's, in other words, there's nobody around for me to lead to the Lord. And he's saying, oh, well, the people are everywhere around you. But that's not the primary problem or the primary concern. He said, because first of all, I've got to do a work in you. There are things that need to take place in your life. So he said, I'm going to first work in you, and then I'll work through you. But see, in the ministry, the demand is to produce and perform, remember? And so that means that... Sometimes we get the cart before the horse. And we're out here trying to get the job done. Oh, we're equipped on the surface. We know all the administrative skills, and we have, have all the very, uh, various diagnostic trainings about Scripture. You know, we know all the theology, and, you know, we know how to, you know, do the various uh, sermon preparations and, and whatever all the trappings are. But, but are we truly equipped? when it comes to impacting people at the heart level. I mean, yes, we can train them and educate them intellectually, but it takes something much more than that to impact a person at the heart level, to, to really impact their spirit and, and to ultimately transform their lives. And that's a divine work of God, and that requires that we have uh, an intimate walk with Him and a genuine connection with Him on, our, on a regular basis, a routine uh, flow of life. It's got to be there. So the Lord was saying to me that night, that day, rather, on that campus, yes, I'm going to work through you, but first, I need to work in you. And God, 
works on that premise. He first works in us in order that he might work through us. And one of the greatest dangers I see with ministries is we're always on the search for the next sermon idea, sermon topic, sermon illustration. And so what happens when ministers come to me for counseling invariably is they want to know, what, where, where did you get that idea? What book did that come out of? You know, and um, Or they'll start immediately processing this like, wow, why, this will preach. You know, I hear pastors say, this will preach. And so what they're saying is, wow, I can use this in my church on Sunday. Now, nothing wrong. We all have to preach on Sundays and other times. So obviously we're going to have to have something to say. But if we'll stop looking to try to find the subjects and the, and the material and stop, uh, start looking to the author and the finisher of our faith, we'll have something to say because it'll come out of a heart full of Him. And His words are spirit and life and His words will minister life. And they will not return void if they originate in Him. If they originate in Him. And so, this is what God is doing. And now here's Peter at that initial stage Follow me, Peter. I will make you. Now, Peter's going to start what he thinks is following him. But watch how Peter spends the rest of these next three years trying to make himself into this great leader and this great man of God. He's going to spend the rest of these next three years trying to make himself and trying to prove himself to the Lord. Trying to prove himself worthy and trying to prove himself able and all the things, you know. And it's not that he doesn't love the Lord. Peter has a zeal for God. He has a love for the Lord. I mean, from early days, he, he knew that this man he was connected with and, and, and related to and communicating with was a special person. And the more he got to know him until he finally realized who he really was talking to and dealing with, the deeper his love grew for the Lord. He's a man sincere a man with a love for God. Luke 5, 1. Uh, Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse 1. Let's take a look over there and take this a little further. Okay, in chapter 5, verse 1, And it came to pass, as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. He saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. Now, there's two ships. Jesus is out there at the Sea of Galilee, and the fishermen are over here on the bank washing their nets. They're not in the ships. But notice whose ship Jesus boards. And he entered into one of the ships, which was whose? Simon. Peter's ship. Very interesting. You see, God the Father has a plan for Peter, and Jesus the Son is moving him into position to perform the plans of God for his call and on his life. And so he moves into his ship, and then he asks him if he will just push out from the land a short distance. So he sat down and taught the people on the ship. Uh, I won't get into that. This is a beautiful truth here. But uh, verse 4, When he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, unto Peter, Launch out into the deep, let down your nets and catch some fish, essentially is what he's saying. Now Peter's response, Master, we have toiled all night and we've taken nothing. You don't understand, Lord. We've toiled all night. We have worked hard. We're exhausted. Backbreaking work. My father-in-law was uh, moonlighted by shrimping. And to pull that big old net in 
was backbreaking work. And I mean, I'd go out to help him sometimes, and we'd be over that ship, that 18-foot boat, and we'd be pulling that big net full of those fish and shrimp and whatever, and trying to unload that. And it, my, my, at the end of the day, I was worn out. We started before daylight, and we finished and got back and cleaned up, and it was after dark. So these men are tired. They're not just tired, they're exhausted. And add to that, this is not just a fun fishing trip, gentlemen. This is their livelihood. This is the bread and butter which puts the food on the table of their household. They're discouraged. They're depressed. I mean, they're just beat to a pulp. And Jesus says, well, it's quite simple. Just go out there a little distance away and throw your net out. You know, what in the world? Who is this? Where does this guy, you know, where does he get off? They still don't know he's the Lord really yet. I mean, they have some glimpses, but they have no clue to who he really is. But nonetheless, Peter has enough of an awareness that there's something about this man that stands head and shoulders above all other men that he says, nevertheless, at your word, I will. I will, not a moment's hesitation. He says, I'm exhausted. I've tried it. I know there's no fish out there. But if you say so, I say yes. And he responds. So we see the heart of Peter. He's a man that's willing to go the distance. That is up to a point. We're going to see that too. But at least here he is ready to take a step, even to take a leap of faith. And then, of course, he gets what the Lord promised. In verse 6, when he had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fish, and the net broke. And then in verse 8, when Simon Peter saw all of what had just happened, he was astounded. And he falls down at Jesus' feet, indicative of worship and reverential uh, submission to some degree, and says to him, Depart from me, for I am one. Notice all uh, Jesus hasn't preached anything about sinners or anything about sin, but look what he says. I am a sinful man. What's happened? He has had a glimpse into the glory of God, and he's seen the purity and the holiness of the Lord. And in light of that, he's made vividly aware of his own inadequacy, i.e. his sinfulness. And it says then, because he was astonished. And all the other were astonished, it says, because of this load of fish they had caught. Such that surely if this man, who has, as far as they knew, no experience as a fisherman, can be so effective on the first cast, then surely this is no ordinary man. This is no mere man. There's something more here. In verse 10, Jesus responds to Peter and says, Do not fear. Now hang on to that word because there's an undercurrent in most of our lives and certainly in the lives of ministers of fear. And much of what we do is motivated by fear. Whether you think you're afraid or not, there's an undercurrent of insecurity that drives us to respond to people in the way we do or to do what we do or to say or not to say what, what we end up saying or not saying because of what others might say or think, including our own very own peers. And that kind of fear and insecurity will not only trap you and ensnare you, but will ultimately destroy you. Destroy you. And I've seen uh, many a minister fall by the wayside because the fears uh, have consumed them. The insecurities 
have devoured them. And yet, on the outside, they might look like the most altogether person around. I've talked to ministers that really appear to have it together. They can, they can run the best of organizations. They, they know how to put the administrative side of their church together. They can establish the educational things and, and the various committees and groups and, and the sermon preparation, and they can expound great truths. But they, they operate out of, out of fear and insecurity. They, they end up uh, motivating their people by guilt and manipulation and not by love and compassion. And, folks, that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. So uh, he says, do not fear, because from now on you're going to be catching men. And again, you know, there's a phrase going around called um, vision casting. Well, Jesus is casting a real vision. And he's showing them, this is what you're going to be about. You're going to be a stone, and you're going to catch men, because I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Now, response. With an encounter of this magnitude, there is certainly a response. And so verse 11, when they had brought their ships to land, it says now, they forsook all, and then what they do? There's our phrase again. They followed him. But this time, this time, they forsook all and followed him. First time, they left their nets and followed him. This time, they forsook all. There is a difference. When you leave your nets, it's symbolic that, okay, I've left my occupation, and now I'm going to be a minister or a pastor or whatever. But that may not necessarily mean you've forsaken all. There's uh, many a minister who's still got a lot of excess baggage he brings with him into the ministry. Oh, he's in the ministry full-time, yes. But he hasn't turned aside from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He hasn't necessarily uh, turned aside from the cares and the riches and, yes, the pleasures of this life. And those kind of things tend to drive him. I heard recently of a situation where a pastor uh, had been called, a man had been called as a pastor of a church. Everything was go. They were down to the last week before he came. There was some last-minute conversation made on the phone before the family was to arrive on Sunday for the big day and the beginning day, and the meal was planned, the, the church-wide meal, and the man says, Well, we never discussed that. Now, over a finer point, a minor point, really, he said, no, I'm not coming. It's not part of the package that I agreed upon. It, it didn't fit into the fine print of what I had signed on when I signed my name on the dotted line. And so what we're seeing now is men who are not responding to the church they go to because of a conviction in their heart that God has assigned them that place and called them there and sent them there. They're not going as a man sent from God, in other words. They're going because it's a better position than the one they had before. They're going there because... The, 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 the package is a little better. The environment seems a little less uh, uh, pressured or demanding, you know. Uh, they're going there perhaps because the, pre the, the present situation, to be quite frank, is, is horrible. And they can't stand some of the people in the church, and some of them are really just down their neck every other day, and so they just want to get out. So that We've got to come back to the place where we go where we go because we are men sent by God. We must do that. That's critical. 
If we're going to be men of God, we must first be sent by God. And so this is what uh, this is what's happening here. They forsook all, and now they're following Him. There, there's got to be a leaving before there can be a cleaving. We say that in the marriage vows. We proclaim that to those who are going to get married. Why, we're talking about the marriage to the bride, as the bride to the bridegroom, to the king of kings, to the Lord of lords. And by all means, man, we must leave all and cleave to him. Cleave to him. This is so critical. It is, it is so important. That includes leaving our dreams, our plans of what we're supposed to look like and act like, what we're supposed to be like. There was a thing that came across uh, my desk in the early days when I began in the ministry about 26 years ago or so. And um, it was an article, and it had a little uh, picture to illustrate it about a, a, a little, it was like a cartoon. And it was about a missionary in Africa, and he was studying the scripture where Jesus talked about, if you're going to be greatest, you must first be servant of all. And he said, hmm, well, I surely want to be greatest, so I, I definitely better find out what it means to be a servant of all. And he concluded that the best way to do that would be to go to his uh, congregation and inquire of them how he could best serve them. So he went to these African uh, people there, and he gathered them together and had a meeting, and he said in the meeting, this is what he said, Tell me how I can best serve you, because my desire is to be a servant. I believe this is God's call for my life. And so they were all pleased to hear this, and they said, Okay, well, we're not going to jump into this, so give us some time. We'll go and discuss it. We'll pray about it. We'll come back and let you know. So the next day they meet again. And now he, here he is, and he's thinking, Oh, this is going to be great. You know, no telling what it's going to be. Probably uh, uh, some wonderful thing like uh, just all, all I have to do now is preach all, all sermons, you know, and and sit in my study and read my Bible half a day every day and, and prepare sermons, which is uh, tragically the case of many ministers. They think their calling is to sit and read books and Bibles all day. Oh, praise God for reading the book and the Bible, but what about pastoral ministry? Anyway, they brought him a mop and a bucket and some cleaning tools. They put it in his hands and they said, Here, this is how you may best serve us. And he was shocked. Because what they were saying is, we want you to, first of all, be an example to us. And we want you to serve us by starting at the very basic level. And we have a church that needs some cleaning. Now, I'm not saying, as is too often the case, that we as ministers should just have to play catch-up for every little thing around the church. I, I think it's a, it's a sad day in which uh, the leaders in the church, the minister, the... the uh, elders, the deacons, the lay people are not carrying an equal share of the load. And I've seen pastors that are out there riding lawnmowers and cutting the grass and cleaning all around the church, and yes, we should all be doing some of that occasionally, but that's not our primary calling. That's why they set aside the first deacons, because these things have to be done, and they should be done, but again, we're a body of Christ, and we all need to be working together with our gifts and our calling. But the issue here is this man had a preconceived idea of how he was best going to serve them, and it didn't include being a true servant. That is to say, washing people's feet. Dealing with the nitty-gritty details of life. 
My first couple of weeks at seminary, I was anticipating some kind of part-time job to support my wife and I. And so Lou and I were praying about what uh, would be the uh, best occupation that would give us some good income and also hopefully give us some good experience for ministry. And a couple of weeks into my seminary studies, uh, one day I felt impressed to go and look at the bulletin board and, and see what job offerings were there. I hadn't looked since I'd gotten to school. I'd just concentrate on getting there, getting settled, and getting started with my classes. So I went there and I looked at all the different ones and they had some great opportunities, but the one that I really sensed God wanted me to respond to was one looking for a church custodian. And so I was most intrigued because it was a church that we had felt led to join and, and to make our church home. And so I went there and discussed it with them, and, uh, and Lou, as Lou and I prayed about it, I began to wonder, now wait, I went through college and I got a college degree and I was going to be a manager of some big corporation and be making big bucks and I was going to be the president and tell everybody what to do and now I've got to go clean commodes, <laughs> you know, and I've got a college education and I've got to mop floors. And I said, Lord, what is this? And he said, well, you want to be a minister? He said, I'm going to teach you how to be a servant, how to truly minister. And he said, furthermore, I want you to learn the ministry from the ground up. He said, I want you to know what's going on behind the scenes in the life of the church. I want you to see the messes that are made in the church. And I want you to see the, the, the struggles that go on with some of the people that you might never ever see ordinarily around the church. And I want you to understand what's really involved here. I want you to learn from the ground up. And so Lou and I spent those uh, next uh, about a year uh, cleaning the church. And it was a, a very rewarding time. We led several people to the Lord that came in looking for somebody and the ministers were gone or whatever and we were there. Uh, we got to minister to people that came needing counseling. She and I uh, would memorize and quote, quote scripture back and forth across the room. She'd be uh, dust mopping and I'd be coming behind her wet mopping and we'd be quoting scripture to each other. I mean, it was a learning experience. It was a humbling experience, but it was a learning experience. It was invaluable. They forsook all and followed him. Let's look at one other, and they will... Uh, what's our... I keep, uh, is it 9.15 we're supposed to break? Yeah, well, I just kind of want to keep a little bit... Um, Mark 3.14. Let's go over there a moment. And I see we have a... A discussion time later, so some things jump out at you that you want to elaborate on or give some examples to or ask questions about. Well, we'll certainly look forward to doing that, too. Okay, Mark 3, uh, 14. That's where I want to and here we have, of course, the account of where uh, Jesus ordained his, his first twelve. And it's important that we note the specifics of the ordination. Why were they ordained? First of all, it says that they should be with him, that, they might send, that he might send them forth to preach, and then that they might have power to heal the sicknesses and to cast out devils. Now, Peter is included in this category. You'll find his name there. Um, but what, uh, what I want you to understand is that uh, the first thing it describes about being ordained and, and into the ministry here is that they might be with him. You see, that is not only first, but it's foundational. You see, the first in order here is not just sequential in order, but it's the foundation 
upon every other aspect is built. Everything else in ministry is built on that basic relationship with Christ, that growing, nurturing, maturing walk with Christ. That's foundational, that they might be with Him. He's not talking about just a physical walking together down uh, the Sea of Galilee or, or uh, along the path there as he's going on the Emmaus walk. He's not talking about that. He's talking about them coming to know him in that intimate knowledge and relationship that allows them to have that heartbeat so they too can be known like David was known as a man with a heart after God. A man who knew what God wanted, who was sensitive to the will and desire of God, and a man who was responsive to the call of God on his life. And that's what Jesus is looking for here, that they might be with him. And then they would go forth to preach and preach. Please remember, men, preach is not just what we do when we stand here behind a pulpit. Preach means to proclaim. It means to, to spread the good news. It means to, to show forth the love of God in your life and through your, through your words of what you say to people. As you go, the Scripture says, preach. Not as you stand behind the pulpit preach, but as you go. It's always to be a way of life. And that way of life includes expository preaching. It includes exhorting from a pulpit. It includes admonishing. It includes reproving and rebuking and exhorting with all long-suffering and doctrine. Yes, it includes all that. But it's so, oh, so much more than that. So much more. So Simon, as it says here again in verse 16, he surnamed Peter. But this man, Peter, has now been ordained by the Lord to be with him, to come into an intimate relationship with him, to a personal, sensitive, tender, heartfelt walk with the Lord, to be one who is being sent forth as a man of God to proclaim the word of God by life and by message, and also to have power. You see, Paul said, I came with, not with the words of man's wisdom. In, in 1 Corinthians 2, he says this in verse 4, but he says, I came in the demonstration of the Spirit and power. The world is saying, put up or shut up. They are, they are full of hearing words. They want to see a living Bible. They want to see those living epistles that Paul wrote about. People who walk and live the life they talk about and preach. That doesn't dismiss the fact that what we preach and teach isn't valid. But when our life has that stamp of reality on it, when the evidence of Christ is there through the, as is seen by the fruit of the Spirit, by the character of Christ, then the world knows these people are for real. They're not just expounding some, some pie-in-the-sky theory. They're living out a reality that has impacted them. They're living out something that has eternally altered their lives. At the mealtime, we were talking about um, uh, some friends of ours that we got acquainted with up in Pennsylvania. And I mentioned how I'd had the privilege of leading a Jewish man to the Lord. But this Jewish man accepted Christ primarily because of what he had seen in another man's life on the job. He worked for a man who lived before him and ex and and was an example to him of Christianity. And he saw Christ at work in this man's life, and it got his attention, it got his interest. And on that basis, for the first time ever in his life, he opted to go into a Protestant church and to hear and to be a part of 
a Christian service. And during that service, I had the privilege of preaching. The Lord led me to change two of my illustrations on a seminar that I teach, which is very structured, and it's with overhead projector transparencies and everything. But I changed these two illustrations, and I brought in two new ones that I'd never used before. And he later told me that those two had both occurred within a two-week period of him being there in that church. And he said the description so vividly portrayed his life that as soon as he heard it, he knew Jesus is real and God is speaking to me. He began to shake so at the end of the service that as we, and, and we hadn't been having... So let's sing a hymn. And he said, what would we sing? And I said, you decide. And he said, well, how about just as I am? I said, sure, that's fine. This Jewish man had been thinking to himself, I don't know what's going on here, and I don't know why I feel the way I do, but I know this. I've seen Billy Graham on TV a couple of times, and at the end of that program, they always sing a song. And if I hear that song, I know I'm supposed to go up there. And, of course, the song he had heard on the times he heard Billy Graham was Just As I Am. And as soon as the song began, my friend, who had, was also the man inspirational in his life, standing next to him with a hymn book in hand, and... This Jewish man knocks him out of the aisle, knocks the hymn book out of his hand, and runs literally down to the front and says, I don't know what's going on in me, but he says, something's happening inside of me. You've described my life. I need what you're talking about. Tell me what to do. And the next thing we knew, he was on his knees with this friend of his beside him, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, this is a demonstration of the Spirit and power. This is God at work impacting the Jewish man and literally turning his life around and making him a new creation. That man today writes Christian material and is a ghostwriter for, for many authors and various people like that. He's a tremendous man of God, loves the Lord, wonderful man. But this is what God does in people's lives. There is power that produces change in people's lives. And yes, Christ is still the same, just as he was the same yesterday, just as he's the same forever, he's the same today. And he makes a difference. He comes to make us whole. He says that, will you be whole? That's one of his questions he asks people occasionally. And the wholeness he refers to is in spirit, soul, and body. And this is what he does in people's lives. This is what he does over and over again. Okay. Let's, uh, shall we go ahead and uh, close this part out? I mean, we're kind of on our, or how do you feel about our schedule? How are we holding up? Uh, well, let's look at one or two more. How about that? Are we, are we, uh, I don't want to overdo everybody, and this is not a night to be worn out. we got tomorrow still. Um, let's go to Matthew 14 and look at verse 26. We'll speed this up, move a little bit farther into the gospel here. Matthew. But I just say Matthew fourteen twenty six. Are we there? And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. And they said, It is a spirit, or we might call it a ghost. 
And they cried out, and there it is again, for fear. For fear. Men's hearts failed them for fear. It says in this latter day that will happen, and uh, it is happening. And straightway Jesus spoke to them, and this is what he said, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. You see, Jesus' presence alone dispels fear. And when we're mindful of his presence, more so than we're mindful of the circumstance or the problem or the need or the challenge, then we begin to see the greatness of our God in proportion to the smallness of our problem. Although in and of itself, it's a big problem. And Jesus understands that and is sensitive to that, not minimizing the problems you might have. But proportionally speaking, Jesus is far greater and certainly far superior to whatever problem or difficulty we might face. It is I, he says, be not afraid. Peter responds, Lord, well, if it is you, just bid me to come, invite me to come. Just give me the go-ahead and, and uh, I'll, I want to come to you. Now, see, remember I told you he has a heart for God. He loves the Lord. And he wants to go up and he wants to be with him because that's the call, to be with him. And at this point, what he knows that means is literally get as close to him and stay as close to him as possible. If it's you, Lord, just invite me to come. And one word is spoken. Verse 29, Jesus says, okay, come. He says, come. Yes, that's all that it takes. Come. One word. And Peter went out and he walked on the water and he went to the Lord. But then, of course, as you know the story, he saw the uh, tremendous wind and the waves of just the intensity of the storm. And again, fear gripped him. And sometimes as we enter into the call of ministry and we move forward in following the Lord, at some point along the way, we begin to become overwhelmed with the fear. In the school of business where I studied, there at the time was a, an author who wrote what he called the what well, became to be known as the Peter Principle. And you may have heard of it, and it wasn't referring to Peter the Apostle, but I believe actually it, it more describes him than perhaps the man that wrote it. The man's name was Peter Drucker. And he wrote about the Peter Principle. And the Peter Principle essentially says that a man will rise to his highest level of incompetence. So we keep getting promoted up until finally we've gotten above our ability to do the job. And suddenly it's like, uh-oh, we're stuck. Now we've got to produce and perform, and we don't have the wherewithal to do it. We're maxed out. We're all spent. We're used up. To put it as it's described these days, you know, we're at the point of burnout now, and we have nothing else to burn. It's all used up. So you, you get to that level, and then it's all over. And so in the life of Peter, we're going to see that same thing occurring, and it's going to evidence right here. He stepped out on the water. He was zealous. And he got out there, but then he went under. Now, let's don't knock Peter too far because I don't know of anybody else that's ever walked on water. So I'm saying he made a significant uh, uh, stride and a, certainly a great step forward in that step of faith when he got out of the boat and he walked on the water. But like all of us, he found that he had those human limitations and the fear gripped him and the panic hit him. And he succumbed to that fear and to that panic, and he was so overwhelmed by the circumstances. And, of course, as you understand, he went under. But I, I think it's beautiful how our Lord never puts us down as we take those, albeit baby steps of faith, and as we step out and stumble and fall. He doesn't put us down for that falling and that failing. He rather responds to us at the cry of help, at the cry of 
need, and he reaches to us at the point of our need, and he restores. Jesus is in the, is in the restoring business. He has come to restore us. He's not come to condemn, as he said it at one point, but he's come that we might be made new, that we might be forgiven, we might be restored and made whole. Well, that's, of course, what happened here. But he does point out to him that there's not only is there fear, but he says in verse 31, O you of little faith, wherefore did you doubt? So the fear was there, but behind the fear there was doubt and unbelief, a little faith. The faith was there, but it was of a small level. It was little, and it was enough to get him out of the boat, but not enough to keep him walking on the water. So he wasn't able to stay following Jesus, to stay in stride with Jesus, to keep in step with Jesus, and he did, of course, succumb to that fear, and, and down he went. But then they got back in the ship, and Jesus, of course, immediately took charge, and everything calmed down, and the storm was put in check. And, and then it says there in verse 33, then they, 33, then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him and said of a truth, you are the Son of God. Now, this is, a, this is an intellectual recognition. They haven't really gotten the full impact of this yet, and we'll see that a moment, in a moment in Peter's life. But at least they've come to some understanding. You, you've got to be the Son of God because, look, you walk on water, you have authority over the wind and the waves. You've, you've got to be uh, God come in the flesh. Okay, let's, uh, let's go to Matthew. Uh, no, wait. Let's, let's just stop there because we've set the stage. Now we're about to go into the, to the time and place where Peter himself gets a further understanding about Christ as the Son of God. So we'll, we'll stop here, and then when we start up next time, uh, we'll, we'll take a look at uh, what it really means to know Him as the Son of the living God, to know Him in that capacity. All right, let's, uh, let me close this in prayer. Lord God, I want to thank You that You've allowed us this time to look into the wonderful words of life, and Lord, just to be encouraged and... and uh, inspired and, and, yes, Lord, challenged and perhaps even in ways convicted as we've examined Peter's life and, and really in light of our own lives, Lord, and Peter's walk in light of our walk and Peter's call and as pertains to our call. Uh, Father, we just trust you now that you will lead us in the path of righteousness for your name's sake, and thank you for just allowing us to be physically refreshed as well as spiritually, just uh, allow our bodies to relax and uh, to unwind and, uh, Lord, just um, allow us to be um, encouraged just to enjoy each other's company in these uh, moments together. In Christ's name, amen.